Hi, I'm Joe Skinner. Thanks for joining us. This is a special bonus episode of the American Masters podcast. Today, we talk to the new Poet Laureate for the United States, Joy Harjo. We need to feed our spirits. You get there, I think, when you're inside of an incredible poem or piece of art or, you know, in those moments where you realize that to be human is to be probably more than human and yet utterly human at the same time. That was Flute Loop One from Joy Harjo's 2008 album, Winding Through the Milky Way. Joining us from her hometown in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Joy Harjo is in many ways an ambassador of poetry and culture. A member of the Muscogee Creek Nation, her work has created visibility for indigenous culture and storytelling, exploring both the politics of the moment and timeless themes tied to cultural transcendence. Harjo mines personal and cultural trauma experienced by Native communities and also generously works towards words of healing. She's written nine books of poetry, several plays and children's books, and a memoir titled Crazy Brave. In this conversation, Joy will read poetry from her recently published collection, An American Sunrise. But enough background, let's hear from Joy herself. What do you hope to achieve as U.S. Poet Laureate? There's just so much. I realize that I probably have seven or eight projects, and I keep coming up with more ideas. I think what's special about this poet laureateship, of course, is that I'm the first Native to occupy this position. And that has meant so much in what we call Indian country. And it's a doorway. You know, it's it's a doorway, I believe, for Native people. And I'm just really honored to serve. I see it as a service position, as I think really all of our positions are whatever we do. So, of course... It's important to let people know that we're still here, that we have many, many Native poets. Poetry is an art that we've always practiced and appreciated. So that's part of what I hope to accomplish is to uh, really, you know, share the field of Native poetry with the American audience. And then also to uh, reach out and to and, and to do what I've been doing for years, which is going out and speaking and singing and, and, and including po- music with poetry sometimes to show that, you know, poetry is essential to our lives because we always go to poetry for times of great and small transformation. We can be transformed by sunrise, sunset. There are... Um, events that naturally transform us and change us, like births, deaths, relationships. We go to poetry for those moments. And we also go to poetry for those intimate, powerful moments where we are filled with amazement and awe at some very small or even large thing. Yeah, I was going to say that, uh, you know, in the age of Twitter and social media and immediate access and gratification, I I think poetry occupies an interesting space. How would you say that poetry competes with this this new world that we live in? Well, poetry is there and it will be there. (laughs) I think it's it will accompany us to the very end. You know, some people, of course, Twitter, text, and otherwise, make poetry out of whatever mode we're moving in as human beings. But it does require. It generally requires you to slow down and pay attention and listen. You know, it's always going to be there as long as there are human beings. You've spoken about the interconnectedness of beings, and, and one time you wrote that 
you've had a theory that some of us are born with nerve endings longer than our bodies. And for some reason, I thought of that quote when you were talking. Transcendence feels like a frequent theme in your work. Why do you think this is a theme that you keep returning to? I, sometimes I wonder if we choose our themes or if they're just built in. But that is one of the major themes in my poetry. And part of it is, you know, every night that I lay down and go into that other world that I'm transcending Earth, even as I'm here on Earth. And I learn things there. And transcending is about going outside of my known universe to a larger kind of knowing that puts everything into perspective. When did you first discover that language had this kind of power for you? Let's see. That's a, that's a good question. Probably as a really young child when I liked to, um, I, my mother wrote songs and we had musicians often at our house. So I loved being able to travel with sound. And one moment, and I wrote about it in Crazy Brave, and I still don't think I got it quite right, was being in a, in a car here in Tulsa and it's summer and it's hot. And it's in those times before seatbelts, so that tells you a little bit about how <laughs> old I am. And uh, I'm standing in the car, and it was Miles Davis's trumpet. I know Miles Davis's sound, and I could hear it. And I followed that sound. I followed that solo. In a way, I became the music. That was a tran transcendent. It was a transcendent moment. It took me somewhere. And then when my mother would write songs, so that music was a carrier. And I think that's where I first came to poetry was music as a carrier of words. So I would really also pay attention to lyrics, what people were saying and what people weren't saying because so much of poetry is the words that you can't find. And yet poetry gives you a manner in which to find what you cannot say. So music is a lot like that too. It's very similar and it carries words. Words are carriers of what we can't say. Yeah, you mentioned your memoir, Crazy Brave, and something that really struck me about the book is how openly you describe past traumas within the family and growing up that many of us can relate to. What role did that history play in pushing you towards poetry? And in your opinion, do you think we need pain and struggle in our lives in order to achieve beauty and to grow? You know, that's a good question, and I wonder... I wonder about that because if you think about it, you don't have a good story if nothing happens. <laughs> you know, if, <laughs> if everything is just going along fine and there's no, the good stories come when, when we're challenged, when people are challenged. And, and there's one challenge after another and then the hero fails and, the, you know, and I'm including heroine too, <laughs> fails or or triumphs, or a series of both. I mean, that's that's what's so compelling about this journey. Yeah, so I wonder. I mean, we want—I've thought frequently about what use are humans, especially in this time of great environmental destruction that, you know, we see what humans have wrought and are, are doing uh, and what others are doing in our names to destroy— and act disrespectfully in this beautiful planet that we have. And so I've wondered about what humans, what use humans are, you know, in terms of the environmental structure, I still am not absolutely sure. As I thought about this, I thought, well, what do we do? We gather stories. So first thing we do, we wake up, 
Well, what did you dream? Well, I dreamed this. What are we dreaming? We're dreaming stories. If you're my generation, you would get on the phone, call people, see how they're doing. You turn on television, you get the newspaper, and now it's internet. You know, what's happening in the world? Uh, what's happening to your relatives? We gather stories. That's what we do. We're here to gather knowledge. I think of poetry writing as a kind of knowledge gathering. When I go into a poem, I don't go into a poem knowing what's going to happen or what I'm going to do, and I imagine probably nearly every artist would tell you that to some extent. Some people might know that there's a certain form or, or something that they want to fulfill, but ultimately you go in looking for something that you haven't heard or seen before. On that note, I thought it might be a good time to hear a poem from your new book. Okay, let's see. I'll do this one, The Fight. The rising sun paints the feet of night-crawling enemies, and they scatter into the burning hills. I have fought each of them. I know them by name, from before I could speak. I've used every weapon to make them retreat, yet they return every night if I don't keep guard. They elbow through openings in faith, tear the premise of trust, and stick their shields through the doubt of smoke to challenge me. I grow tired of the heartache of every small and large war passed from generation to generation. But it is not in me to give up. I was taught to give honor to the house of warriors, which cannot exist without the house of the peacemakers. Thank you. Can poetry heal cultural division? I think so. I mean, we're going to need all the tools that we can get. <laughs> we do need healing across, uh, across dividing lines. And I think, you know, we need all the tools we can get, and poetry is one of them. And actually that poem references how the Mus our Muscogee Creek people, you know, deal with conflict. You know, we have, you know, two, two houses of government. You know, it is like the House of the Warriors, essentially the House of the Warriors and the House of the Peacemakers. Because we need, you know, because we're in a world of duality, you know, we have those who, those who make peace and those who need to go out and, and defend and create in a, way, in a way to create. This collection feels really of the moment. And I know I was saying that a lot of your work feels timeless. And I think this book kind of straddles both worlds where it feels timeless and of the moment. How did you approach writing this collection and why did you choose to release this as your first set of poems as the Poet Laureate? It, it's interesting how it came together because usually what happens when I put together a book, I'm working on poems and they're you're working towards something or you're working out something. And then I usually put it together, you know, find what's going on and, and, then, and, and then pull it together. This one came very differently. I had a chair of excellence at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and I, part of the reason I agreed to assume that position there was to go out and explore our homelands. My husband is also from the same, you know, from the Muscogee Creek, and we have stories and we know a lot of the places that our relatives were before removal. And so it was during my interview, I said, yeah, my, my, my grandfather, seven generations, Manahu, used to steal horses here in Knoxville. 
which is which is true. And they used to go up and down the Tennessee River, and it was important to be back there, even as painful as it was. But being there gave me great insight into this division, and into history and painful history. Because what is, you know, you can imagine what it would have been like for our people to have been forced by gunpoint out of our beautiful lands all up all down through the south and from in Alabama, Georgia, all along near that Tennessee River and all the way. It, it, beautiful, beautiful country. And then we're not there. Often it was only my husband and I in that back in that area. And it was it was painful and yet beautiful. So when we were getting ready to leave, we were going to move back to Oklahoma from there, which uh, was, you know, it, it was pain, you know, painful to realize that here we came home and and now we're leaving, and so which sets up a strange dichotomy within yourself. And I looked out into the trees, and the spirit of this book asked me the question, "What did you learn here?" And I had no time to write a book of poetry. It was the last thing on my list. I was trying to finish up three other projects, and I was finishing up teaching, doing a double load, and I had several grad students I was responsible for, and and the book just haunted me, and it kept at me. So the release date, it just came. I was working on it in the middle of everything else, and I turned it into the press, and it was even revising. <laughs> I was constantly revising it and putting it together. So I didn't know about the Poet Laureateship until the, the um, you know, pub date had been set. It was an interesting coincidence that all of it came together at the same time. And why does it have the title, An American Sunrise? Sometimes titles just land. There's a poem in there called An American Sunrise. And there were other possibilities, and I did wrestle with the title a bit. I had another title I was working on, I think Exile of Memory. But it landed, and I think it's partly, I realize, it's because, you know, what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to be Native and disappeared from your country? You know, what we're dealing with here with this divisiveness is the lack of knowledge or listening to the whole American story with all the parts. Or, you know, with forces wanting to make an America that includes only certain people. So sunrise, of course, means a new beginning, a new day new vision, new insight, which every sunrise gives us that, you know, you go out into the morning and catch that light and it refreshes your vision and gives you impetus to continue no matter what's gone on through the night. There's a mosaic of quotes and excerpts throughout the book. How did you decide to incorporate that kind of material? I think the first person that gave me permission to full around with format and placement of materials was in Scott Momaday with his book, The Way to Rainy Mountain, which I've often taught as a memoir with the use of those three different voices. And then I liked how the way that Leslie Silco carried that through in her, her uh, collection, The Storyteller. And then Claudine Rankin did, she kind of opened up the form with her more narrative tellings. I was thinking of different voices and different kind of voices and also how poetry really appears when it is spoken or appears in when it's needed in a community. It's not usually in a collection of, you know, 70 pages of spoken poetry, but it usually comes in between people eating, you know, telling stories, 
I guess in a way it's like trying to give it the context of an age, so to speak. Yeah, to me it felt like it was stressing the importance of the collective over the individual, which I think you're kind of getting at in that answer too. I mean, would you say that you you value the collective over the individual? Well, it's all one and the same, mm. really. And I, I appreciate you saying that because that was, I think, one of the first reviews I got criticized. That was the critical point. I mean, it was a favorable review, but that I was doing too much of the collective voice over the individual, and they thought that was faulty. But I realized then, well, maybe I didn't get it across that way, is that we are the collective. And I, I think for me, and I think for a lot of people, it changed to see that image of the Earth when NASA released that image. It was profound and powerful, and I don't remember exactly what year, but suddenly you started hearing terms like environmental and global and and holistic and came into the vocabulary. It was because of that image, and when you see that image, you realize that, one, we are a collective. There's no doubt about it. You see it as one person, and yet the collective is made up of all the parts. So, of course, we're individuals and we're the collective at the same time. When you first started writing in the 70s, you came of age in a really fertile time for Native writers. What do you think made this such an important moment? And can you speak to the importance for you and the Native community in writing work that celebrates a Native worldview and identity? When I was writing uh, Crazy Brave, I realized that we were seven generations from the generation of Tecumseh, who came down to Muscogee Creek country and inspired our people, inspired people like my grandfather, Manahui. And there was a movement going on of Native rights, just like our generation in the early 70s, and and of cultural renewal, basically. So it was seven generations before our generation or my generation that that same move towards, wait a minute, you know, here we are, we're tribal nations, we're sovereign tribal nations, and let's act like it, and we're sovereign tribal people, and we have our cultures, and we have our languages, and, and, you know, even as we uh, might appear to be disappearing or being folded into the American mainstream, we're not, and we never will be. We're who we are, you know, and, and there's a reason we're who we are, and we're, you know, the original peoples here in these lands. You know, realizing that, it it made me think a lot about patterns and about how really nothing, none of us ever really die. And this story, this story will keep moving until it's resolved and cleared. America will not mature as a country until, you know, the story of Native people is restored as central to the narrative of what it means to be an American. Do you think history is cyclical, or do you think humanity naturally moves forward and progresses? Right now, I think that humanity might sometimes move forward and yet regresses. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then you think about it. You know, in a lot of there's all these stories of worlds. You know, the fourth world, the fifth world. What that is is that I think human beings. This isn't the first time we've come to a point of massive destruction or near massive destruction. There's stories that go across cultures all around the world about massive floods. And then the, you know, we keep hearing about the turning of the, uh, the, the poles, uh, the shifting and the ice age. And the, and the stories that we hear, however they're buried, you know, the shards of the stories are buried in mythological constructs or 
or retellings or, or parts of history is that we seem to come to this place and lose ourselves in ourselves instead of remembering that we are a we and we we are the earth. This land isn't our land. It's not your land. It's we are the land. So yes, there's we are in you know it's we are in a in a in a universe that's cyclic by nature. Even our cells are. Even you know sound is cyclic. Even the way sound is made and and we are sound essentially. When you were working in the '70s and first you know beginning as your career as a poet. Were you consciously thinking about these kinds of ideas, or is it something that just kind of channels into your work? Okay, that's a good question, because sometimes I wonder about what is conscious and what comes up through us. DNA, I always think of DNA as essentially spirals of stories. I've gotten bits of stories, we all do, it's not, you know, that come up that are really parts of family stories or things that you know that you know, but you don't know how you know that you know. And we carry them. We carry the stories of our ancestors, and I believe we carry the stories of, of the plants and the, um, the elements and, and the, the uh, animals and so on that were related to you know as being from certain kind, certain places and having connections to certain places. I I I think too about. I think everybody has some kind of something that always. Uh, like we were talking about themes, there's something that all, it's always compelling. And for me, from day one, it's about Native people and, and looking at my family and, and, you know, and then we had these, there's always, there's the warriors that people know about through history and then I was, I've always thought about what about, their, most of the people, we don't know their names and we don't know their stories and those people are the, also, you know, those are important people. And I think one thing that really shifted my vision or really helped me on this road in, you know, as a creative artist was going to the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe when it was a Bureau of Indian Affairs school, mostly servicing or taking care of high school students from, from Indian country all over, from everywhere from Alaska, North Dakota, South Dakota, Florida, Oklahoma. And, you know, it was the late 60s. We were taught by incredible artists, and incredible art came out of there. And I remember even as a kid, it was the first time I really felt at home in this world was to be in that community of young Native artists. And I knew from my time as a child that that's what I would do as my life. But we were thinking about, well, what does it mean to be a Muscogee Creek artist? What does it mean to be a Native artist during this time? Uh, what is it we want to accomplish with our art? How does it matter to our people? And, and what are we creating together? In a way, I think we had that sense, even as we were absolutely individual in our expression. And being there at that time, which um, really kind of birthed the contemporary Native arts movement, was so important. Being there really helped shape my vision of what art meant and where it was going. And then I went to the University of New Mexico, not right after I became a teenage mother and went through a lot of challenge there. And then again, it was another level of, you know, social galvanizing of people like, who are we and how are we going to continue and how do we face, all, you know, so many challenges that involve racism and, and um, all of the battles that our people have dealt with since the beginning of, you know, of immigration. 
So filmmaker Jeff Palmer interviewed you for American Masters and Scott Mamaday, Words from a Bear, which will be airing next week. That film is entirely about Kiowa writer and Scott Mamaday, and you also quote him in your new collection, like you mentioned. Could you speak to the impact that Mamaday had on your early career? Yes, Mamaday was the, he was the one we all looked up to. I didn't start writing until like 1973, and Housemate of Dawn won the Pulitzer Prize. It was 67 or 68. And that made a profound impact in Indian country, and it, you know, it told the world that, yes, we're story makers, and we're story makers of the highest sort. Certainly he, he influenced, like I'd said earlier, the way to Rainy Mountain influenced me, and you know, he was a poet. I think he was a poet first. So there was, uh, you know, his work, he's always had an attention to language and to orality, which our stories, and it doesn't matter whether you're Philip Roth or Margaret uh, Atwood or whoever, it's our story, the roots of our stories are oral storytelling. And you can't get away from that in his, his work. It's just, it's profound, profound and beautiful. And his works were transcendent. There was always a point where, despite the challenge and the losses, whether it was a song or a sunrise, or there was always some moment that imparted beauty. Do you think a poem is better to be read or to be heard? It's just different experiences. It depends on who's reading it, for one. <laughs> but generally, I think they're better spoken, a lot better spoken. And on that note, I was wondering if you'd want to read one more from your collection. So this one, I think this poem started this collection because I was standing there looking at the trees, as I said earlier, and I knew I was being called to do, to, this book was taking over, and I'm thinking, how do I start talking about something that is so profoundly grief-filled, and where in the world do you start in a place, too, where it's been buried? The, pre the presence of natives in the South has been buried. Our houses, our, our, the places we lived are everywhere. Even on the campus of the University of Tennessee, there was a mound everywhere you walk. And at the end, I had no idea it surprised. Like I said, the poem surprised me, and I realized that I had come, returned because of someone's poem, because of someone's song. How to write a poem in a time of war. You can't begin just anywhere, it's a wreck. Shrapnel in the eye of a house, a row of houses. There's a rat scrambling from light with fleshy trash in its mouth, a baby strapped to its mother's back, cut loose. Soldiers crawl the city, the river, the town, the village, the bedroom, our kitchen. They eat everything or burn it. They kill what they cannot take. They rape what they cannot kill. They take. Rumors fall like rain, like bombs, like mother and father tears swallowed for restless peace. Like sunset slanting toward a moonless midnight, like a train blown free of its destination, like a seed fallen where there is no chance of trees or any place for birds to live. No, start here. Deer peer from the edge of the woods. We used to see woodpeckers the size of the sun and were greeted by chickadees with their good morning songs. We'd started to cook outside, slippery with dew and laughter. Ah, these smoky, sweet sunrises. We tried to pretend war wasn't going to happen, though they began building their houses all around us and demanding more. 
They started teaching our children their God's story, a story in which we'd always be slaves. No, not here. You can't begin here. This is memory shredded because it is impossible to hold with words, even poetry. These memories were left here with the trees. The torn pocket of your daughter's hand-sewn dress, the sash, the lace, the baby's delicately beaded moccasin still connected to the foot, a young man's note of promise to his beloved. No, this is not the best place to begin. Everyone was asleep despite the distant bombs. Terror had become the familiar stranger. Our beloved twin girls curled up in their nightgowns next to their father and me. If we begin here, none of us will make it to the end of the poem. Someone had to make it out alive, saying a grandfather to his grandson, his granddaughter, as he blew his most powerful song into the hearts of the children. There it would be hidden from the soldiers, who would take them miles, rivers, mountains from the naval court place of the origin story. He knew one day, far day, the grandchildren would return, generations later over slick highways constructed over old trails, through walls of laws meant to hamper or destroy, over stones bearing libraries of the winds. He sang us back to our home place from which we were stolen in these smoky green hills. Yes, begin here. Thank you. Who do you speak to when you're writing? I think mostly I'm listening. Can you talk a little bit about your process? I used to think that if I talked about process, then it would all go away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. There's still, it, it, every poem is different. Yeah. You know, and it, 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 but it ultimately, it, you know, it really involves being quiet, and in this day and age, it can be very difficult to stop and listen because we're so bombarded. And I remember Day talking about that years ago, talking about being bombarded by print and, you know, words everywhere, but little did he know <laughs> we're utterly bombarded these days. And uh, by social media, by Internet, by all the movie channels and shows and so on, so much that they all involve listening, but we're not listening. So the process, what's important in the process is, is really, it's really listening. And I think that goes with any art, whether it's dance or um, painting, photography. It's really about stopping and listening. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to meet with us. This is my last question if there's one thing that a reader or a listener could take away from your work or take away from art in general, what would you want that to be? I don't know if there's something that I would want it to be. It's that I believe that we need to feed our spirits. And how do we do that? We need spiritual food or, or, or inspirational food as much of, of ideas and sounds and all that art gives us as much as we need food, sheltered clothing, you know, what are considered basics to human survival. It's about finding, you know, really finding ourselves as utterly and beautifully and astonishingly human. And you, you get there, I think, when you're inside of an incredible poem or a piece of art or a dance or, you know, in those moments where you realize that to be human is to be probably more than human and yet utterly human at the same time. 
Well, it's been a pleasure to meet you. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I, I've been, actually enjoyed this interview. The track you're hearing is called To Chase Away Bad Thoughts for Teo and Chasen from Joy Harjo's 2010 album, Red Dreams Trail Beyond Tears. The American Masters podcast was created by Michael Cantor and is produced by me, Joe Skinner, and co-produced by Josh Hamilton with sound engineering by Josh Broom, Evan Joseph, and John Berman. For American Masters, we thank series producer Julie Sachs and associate producer Cristiano Lombardo. We'd also like to thank Steve Clem from KWGS in Tulsa for helping facilitate this conversation. You can also see Joy Harjo speak more in depth about author N. Scott Momaday in American Masters N. Scott Momaday, Words from a Bear. Check your local listings and tune in on PBS next week, November 18th, or stream this episode at pbs.org slash American Masters. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in a week for our next regular episode of the American Masters podcast.